According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, picking up where we left off last week. And I'll tell you, we're right on the cusp here of jumping into some of the deepest things you'll ever see anywhere in the scriptures. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, as we come to the, the essence of our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ and the, the blessings that we have in prayer, in worship, in sacrifice, and all that we do uh, within the veil. The blessings that we have within the veil. And uh, we're right here on the, on the cusp of it. So we're really looking at verse 6 and verse 7 this morning, and then we'll launch into, I uh, imagine by next week we'll be ready for verses 8 through 12, which is really a citation from Jeremiah 31. And so we'll be going back and forth between Jeremiah and Hebrews and, and showing how this is all being expanded for our church age application. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father in His faithfulness to set aside our distractions and to humble us for the word implanted, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we acknowledge your glory. We acknowledge our dependence upon you. We are utterly needy. And Father, our finite understanding cannot begin to appreciate your thinking. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your thoughts than our thoughts, your ways than our ways. Father, we, uh, we couldn't begin to even grasp the fringes. Except that you are a God of grace. And in your grace, Father, you have provided for us your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth that you've baptized us into union with your Son, that we have a position in Christ, Father, whereby we have, every, we have full standing, full adult standing as your children, and every right to be here, Father, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And I thank you, Father, the Word of God is not earthly subject matter. It's not uh, something uh, in, in the earthly realm where uh, smarter people catch on quicker and other people uh, struggle and Maybe they never catch on at all. But Father, uh, the Word of God does not depend on how smart we are. It is how faithful you are to open our eyes, to open our ears, to soften our hearts. Father, I pray this hour with the, that we would have humility to receive the Word implanted that is able to save our souls. And we thank you for being so faithful. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. When you get into Melchizedek doctrine, you get into some deep things. And uh, the author of Hebrews even made it clear that he, he didn't think his audience was ready for it yet, that uh, he wanted to go into detail, but uh, they needed milk instead of meat, and uh, he rebuked them in an earlier chapter. But then when he got into uh, these chapters, it's almost as if he couldn't help himself, and so he started to, uh, to talk about Melchizedek here at the end of chapter 6 and starting the first part of chapter 7. And given as tough as that chapter is, he went ahead and summarized it in chapter 8 and verse 1 and said, this is the main point. The main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. No one ever had a high priest like ours before ours, all right? We are the first stewardship to have a high priest, one that has passed through the heavens, one that has entered within the veil. Not the earthly replica, the real veil, the reality of the heavenly temple and the holy of holies before the Father's throne. And so that's the impact of this. And that's where we are. He went in as a forerunner. We are with Him in our positional truth in Christ. When the Holy Spirit baptized you into Christ, that day you got saved, 
You are baptized in union with Christ. You entered within the veil. You stand in the presence of God the Father by your position in Christ. And this is a huge, huge blessing, but also a responsibility. Because to whom much is given shall much be required. And of those that have given much, all the more will it be expected if we've been entrusted much. And so this is what we're dealing with here, all right? So we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So much greater than an annual sin offering is the daily moment-by-moment remembrance before the Father's throne. Every time we sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we don't have to wait for an evening sacrifice or a morning sacrifice or for an annual day of atonement. We have the moment-by-moment testimony of our Savior and His intercession at the Father's right hand on our behalf. That's powerful. And it's uh, in verse 4, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. And we talked about this. We're going to talk about it some more this morning. These counterfactual arguments, the, the doctrine that can be gleaned when you realize that something's not true. And if it would have been true, then this other thing would have happened. All right. And these are the could have, would have, and should have, which I think every one of us in this room has at least, you know, one or two or a hundred. We've got uh, no shortage of, of could have, would have, and should have in our past looking back. And uh, and yet God has the very same thing because God in his omniscience has the full spectrum of every choice we could make or might make or, or need to make and things of that nature. So stay tuned this hour. We're going to really expand upon that. But if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. You know, after he died and the veil was written too, uh, you you kind of think that that priesthood would say, oh, I guess we're retired now. I guess we're, we're done. Our mission is over. Instead, no, they kept going. They continued in their Levitical priesthood. They stitched the, the veil back together again on that Saturday. They broke the Sabbath to do it, to stitch that, that veil back together again, to keep doing the, the daily offerings that they were doing. Uh, uh, from that point on, this was 33 when Christ was crucified, all the way to 70 AD when their temple was destroyed, when their city was destroyed. They kept the Levitical priesthood functional after the death of Christ on the cross. And so this is uh, interesting for us. Uh, I put this on a slide, a point we were looking at last week, that uh, his present bodily absence from this world is to our advantage. But then secondly, that the post-Calvary Levitical priesthood continued for more than 30 years as an obsolete, unbelieving endeavor. An obsolete, unbelieving endeavor. And in fact, after the rapture of the church coming up, hopefully today, when that trumpet sounds and we're called out of here, Israel will be restored to their stewardship and they will rebuild a temple. They will resume animal sacrifices in the tribulation. That's clear. And they will have a temple for which Antichrist will step in and put a stop to their sacrifices. He will defile their temple in a way that Antiochus Epiphanes never did. And we have all the things moving forward in those kind of prophetic studies. But continuing for more than 30 years as an obsolete, unbelieving endeavor. Pay attention to those terms, obsolete and unbelieving. It was obsolete because God made it obsolete and he designed it to be obsolete. It's, it wasn't an accident that it was made obsolete. It was by design that the shadows would be fulfilled by the substance in Christ. And so when Christ in his substance went to the cross and fulfilled everything, then Mosaic law became obsolete in terms of the animal ritual and the sacrifices and the, the doctrine that was contained in the, in the shadow uh, theology. But it's also an unbelieving endeavor. Unbelieving. 
Imagine how much religion takes place minus faith. How much religion takes place. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So if you have a zeal that's not in accordance with knowledge, that's not faith. That's a pseudo-expression of faith. That's a human effort. And uh, there's a lot of religion in this world that happens minus faith, that happens as an unbelieving endeavor. And uh, we want to be clear on those studies as well. All right, so uh, there are priests who offer gifts according to the law in verse 5, in verse 4, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For he said, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So the earthly tabernacle was just a replica. Same thing in Solomon's temple. It was a replica. Same thing with Ezra's temple. Just a replica. Herod's temple. Just a replica. It's an earthly model of a heavenly reality in, in every, every iteration of it. Every, every edition of temple or tabernacle was just a, an earthly replica of the heavenly reality. What we learn in Hebrews, though, is that our Savior functions in the heavenly reality, and so do we. That is our blessing in Christ. Our blessing in the Melchizedek priesthood is not to go into a replica, but to enter into the reality and to operate there as believer priests. And so pay attention to that as well. Now when we get into verse 6, it says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Now we've got to unpack this a bit. We've got to make sure we're solid on this because there's a, a wide spectrum of, of different conclusions that come from this verse and similar verses. And to be fair, there are good men and good ministries that have different views on the new covenant. And I want to explain those, explain them for what they are, and then also explain in more detail, not necessarily in this verse, but when we get into uh, chapters 9 and 10 to make sure we're solid on the fact that the new covenant is not with us. The new covenant is with Israel. And we're going to see that even in this chapter. We're going to see that because verses 8 through 12 are word for word a quotation from Jeremiah 31. That, that Yahweh makes that covenant and he doesn't make that covenant until after the tribulation. And so he hasn't made it yet. He shed the blood in order to make it, but he hasn't made the covenant yet. And that's got to be clear. And this is where we have some differences with some of our like-minded assemblies or not so like-minded assemblies and why we want to be relaxed if in fact uh, there are other understandings of the text. Schaefer taught it in a different way than Geisler taught it in a different way than, than other folks have taught it. And so we want to be clear how we teach it and why we teach it the way that we do. And so paying attention to the terms I think is helpful. So it says, but now, presently, now is now, at the time he's speaking, and with Jesus seated at the Father's right hand, now he has, completed action, obtained a more excellent ministry. So let's stop right there. But now, presently, in the church age, he has, it's been assigned to him, because the Father took a vow and said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So that's a reality. And that's a reality now. He's not waiting to start that priesthood at Armageddon or at Second Advent. He has that priesthood now, and so do we. That's the now of this verse. He has obtained a more excellent ministry. And really that's to encapsulate everything that's been said in chapter 6 and chapter 7 and for five verses of chapter 8. 
All of that gets encapsulated with, we have such a high priest and he has obtained a more excellent ministry. More excellent than any high priest to ever walk this earth. But then it builds upon the now with an also. And when when he puts the language of also into there, we have to ask the question, with that also, is that also now or is that also come later? Because of the more excellent ministry he has now. And that's the conclusion. And this is where really fair interpreters do come to to different exegetical conclusions. All right, so now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as, in other words, to the degree commensurate with, in proportion to what he has coming up, the excellent ministry he has now is comparable to the more excellent ministry he will have in those days by as much as he is also so stop right there. He is also. Now we, we can use also in different ways for things that are different or things that are the same, right? So I am the pastor of Austin Bible Church. I'm also, you know, the father of four children. Those aren't, you know, connected in any way. They just happen to be true. They've overlapped for most of that, okay? Um, not all of that. There were only two children when I became pastor. But you see what I'm saying? And also can introduce something completely irrelevant, completely separated or connected, but not identical. And that's what we have here. It's connected, but it's not identical. The new covenant is connected to his priesthood, but it's not identical with his priesthood. Because the priesthood he has now, the new covenant hasn't come yet. The new covenant is with Israel after the tribulation. We've got some real problems And in fact, I'm willing to entertain the other side's arguments, but I'm going to insist that they make those arguments fairly, and I'm going to insist that they show me the present fulfillment of everything in the New Covenant, if in fact it's operational today. All right? And uh, of course, they can't do that, so I uh, uh, I have the easier burden of proof in this debate when it comes, uh, when it comes down to that. All right. So he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as, or to the degree that, commensurate with, that, the, that he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Better covenant, okay? That priesthood came in tandem with the Mosaic covenant. This new priesthood is going to come in tandem with the new covenant, but the new covenant's not here yet. Which has been enacted on better promises. Better promises. Grounded in Jeremiah 31. And so that's what he's going to take us to in verses 8 and following. So a better covenant enacted on better promises. What were the promises of the Old Covenant? The promises of the Old Covenant. You might remember when Israel was in the wilderness and they were at the bottom of Mount Sinai and there was a lot of smoke and thunder and noise and scary stuff. And Israel was so terrified, they told Moses, go up there, come back, tell us what God said. All right, And the fear with that first covenant, the fear that came with Mosaic law, totally different from promise, the promise to Abraham. All right, This covenant came with promises of blessing and promises of cursing. It was promises that they had to recite. They put six tribes on one mountain and six tribes on another mountain and they preached to each other across the valley in the middle. They recited the blessings, they recited the cursings. Well, guess what? The uh, 
New covenant has no cursings. The new covenant is blessings. The new covenant is unconditional. I will. What Yahweh will do for His people. The Mosaic covenant is completely conditional. If you do this, if you do that. If you obey me, you'll enjoy the land. If you disobey me, captivity. All right? So the Mosaic covenant was conditional with a lot of if you do this language and cursings promised. The new covenant is unconditional. What Yahweh will do for His people. And they couldn't break it if they wanted to. And they can't break it ever. Is the, is the point that's made. Because he's going to write his word not on tablets of stone, he's going to write his word on their heart. They will all know him. They're going to be in the prophetic office as far as the nation of Israel is concerned. And they're going to minister to the Gentiles for the entire thousand year reign. Some of those things we'll study as well as we, as we get there. All right. And so in understanding this, now this is awkward for folks that want to put the church in the new covenant. And they either want to put the church totally in the new covenant, taking it away from the Jews, which is called replacement theology, or they want to just kind of, um, you know, just kind of butt their way into the new covenant and join in as a, as a parasite kind of thing and, uh, and actually steal it first because the Jews aren't ready for it yet. And so that kind of gets in a, a partial covenant fulfillment. And in, there's thousand flavors and all this kind of thing because no one can really lock it down because it's wrong, all right? Because it has flaws. It has flaws mainly with the fact that it's not enacted till after the tribulation and we haven't gone through the tribulation yet. We haven't gone through the rapture yet. We haven't, Israel hasn't been prepared for their covenant yet. And I think it's also flawed just on a fundamental level with the nature of promises, the nature of covenants. And here we are one week after we had two weddings last Saturday and marvelous blessings and they're fun uh, and it's, all, you know, it's a joy to see the, the bride and the groom and, and what do they do? They stand before the Lord and what do they do? They make vows. They make vows. And the man says, I will. The woman says, I will. Okay, if, if they're biblical. If they're copying Hollywood script, it's more of I do. You know? But I prefer I will keeping it in the language of covenant, keeping it in the language of, of Scripture. And they make a vow, I will, till death us do part. All right? Now, the key to this whole illustration is, is you're standing there and you're making that vow before the Lord to one person and one person only. Okay? If you're the groom, it's that bride standing there. If you're the bride, it's that groom standing there. Right? And the pastor's administering it. Everybody's watching. God's listening. And that's the vow. That's the covenant that you're making. Now later on, if you decide that you want to swap that bride out with this other woman over here, okay, it happens. It's ugly. But when it happens, you're not being faithful to your vow. You can't claim that you're still faithful to your vow if you change the recipient of your vow. So if God makes Israel the recipient of his vow in the new covenant and then decides to throw that out and be faithful to the church, you realize what replacement theology is? Replacement theology at its core is the idea of, of a man that can't keep his vow to his woman so he finds a different woman and says, okay, 
I'm going to be faithful to you and then act like I was faithful to her all along. No, you weren't. You, you dumped her to the side. That's what replacement theology is. That's horrible. It means God's a liar. And really, <clears throat> I mean, if you were a woman in that kind of circumstance, would you trust this guy? You know? What's to keep him from dumping you and, uh, you know, he's going to move on to the next one? And move on to the next one. Okay? The language of covenant is the language of faithfulness. Grounded in I will. Declared on an eternal scope. And so we're going to deal with that because days are coming, says the Lord. Just a preview, if you want a sneak preview here in verse 8. It's quoted from Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I mean, that should be a no-brainer right there. We're the church. We're neither Jew nor Gentile. We're a heavenly citizenship. We are a new creation. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. Mosaic law wasn't with the church. Mosaic law was with Israel. The fathers of the same Israel that he's going to make the new covenant with. So since the church was never under Mosaic law, why would the church ever be under the new covenant? And as we're going to see too in the language of mediator and the language of servant, we can't be party to something that we're administrating. And that's uh, another issue. So stay tuned for that. All right. Jesus' present session at the right hand of God the Father, His present session, the session of Jesus Christ is critical. So I gave it a capital S. Jesus' present session at the right hand of God the Father is a more excellent ministry as it exhibits substance rather than shadows. It exhibits substance rather than shadows. And I do like 1 John 2, 1. I like the blessings that we have in Christ. If we sin, I don't need to bring a goat. I don't need to wait until the morning offering. I don't need to wait until uh, the Day of Atonement. Because honestly, most of my sins are willful sins. Most of my sins are not sins that a sin offering would cover anyway. I would have to wait till the Day of Atonement to have these other sins taken care of on an annual basis. But 1 John 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, right there, at that moment, continuously, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. Right then, right there. I can confess that sin immediately. Right upon my conviction of that sin, I confess it. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf, but then, having accepted the wrath, having accepted the judgment, did he stay unjust? No. He was raised for our justification. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is, this is critical for our priesthood. All right, he himself being the propitiation. That's mercy seat, by the way. The language of propitiation is the word for mercy seat. That's why we don't go to a mercy seat, we go to a throne of grace. Because Jesus is the mercy seat who takes us to the Father. Not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 
This is his present session in the right hand of God the Father. And it is a more excellent ministry. And we have the substance, not the shadows. We have the instantaneous reality, not waiting for a holy day, not waiting for a, a mediator. We have a mediator that would been there, done that, he's seated, and the Father doesn't want to remember those things ever again. That's cast behind his back as far as the east is from the west. Jesus Christ the righteous, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now that's his present session. But this is leading into what's coming. In addition to Jesus' present ministry is the additional role, notice the also in that verse, the additional role he has as the mediator of the new covenant. As the mediator of the new covenant. And as is so often the case, ministry leads to the next ministry. Jesus' earthly ministry led to his present ministry. His present ministry is leading to his future ministry. It's the same thing with you and with me. Our present ministry is leading to our next ministry. That is, the church age here in time is equipping the bride to function with with Jesus in the millennium and in the fullness of time after the millennium. All right, so we have present ministry that leads into the next ministry. He has a future ministry as the mediator of the new covenant. It was introduced in 722, also used the also language. I don't know that I stressed it back in chapter 7, but talking about this oath, this is 721. Have I lost everybody yet? You still following? Here we go. All right. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And he gets this priesthood as he's seated at the Father's right hand. So much the more also, notice, in addition to you are a priest forever, so much more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And so you do vocabulary studies on the guarantee, vocabulary studies on the mediator. You find all the details that come into what Jesus is going to do connected to this new covenant. Same thing with what we're going to do connected to this new covenant because we're not mediator, we're not guarantee. We're deacon. The bride of Christ is the deacon, servant, helper for Jesus in his role mediating the new covenant. We are the members of the church will be deacon servants for Jesus when he applies the new covenant to the nation of Israel in the millennium. So it hasn't happened yet. We're getting ready to be doing that. It's like in uh, 1 Corinthians 6 when it says, quit suing brothers in, in court. He says, don't you know we will judge the world? So how much more matters of this life should we not handle our own business here in the church? When Paul says that, I think we're all unanimous, we're not judging the world yet. (laughs) Okay, That's still future. But he's equipping us to do that coming up. Since he's equipping us now to do that coming up, we ought to be able now to handle our our own dirty laundry. We handle our own issues here and now. Okay? Please tell me this is making sense. I know I'm under antihistamines right now, and I know that I get this antihistamine fog every allergy season. All right. So there's an also in 7.22. There's an also in 8.6. We look at 9.15. And there's really nothing anywhere in Hebrews that demands that the new covenant is in effect. In effect, there's every expectation that it's not. Because in the old covenant, you notice, what's the last verse of chapter 8 say? 
When he says a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. You see that? It hadn't disappeared yet. I wish it was, but it's not. It's becoming obsolete. It's growing old. It's ready to disappear. As the Southerners, you Southerners here would say, it's fixing to disappear, right? It's fixing to disappear, but not yet. The fact that it's still fixing to means the old covenant has not yet disappeared and the new covenant has not yet been put into effect. It can't be until he enters into judgment with his nation in the wilderness judgment of Ezekiel chapter 20. We'll prove that too. All right, chapter 9 of verse 15. So there's nothing really that demands a future, I mean a present fulfillment. It's just the present is getting ready for the future. That's what we see here. So in, in Hebrews 9, notice in verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of what? Of the good things to come. Do you see that? Hebrews 9.11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. So his present priestly ministry is looking forward to something that's not here yet. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. He died on the cross and the veil of that earthly temple rent in two, and he never went in there, didn't have to go in there. No point going in there. The veil of the replica was torn in two. When he ascended to heaven, he entered within the reality, as it says right here. And not through the blood of goats and calves. That's how Aaron would have done it. He would have used an animal, blood not his own, and gone into the replica. Jesus entered the holy place once for all. Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Eternal. Aaron went in and it was just an annual deal. He had to come back again next year. He had to go within the veil, provide for the atonement, and then come back out. Do it all over again the next year. Another dead animal, blood not his own. Year after year after year. The high priests were going in and coming back out. Jesus, once, once and for all, and not the blood of of an animal, his own blood, his own spiritual death. And he entered within the veil, not the replica, the veil, the reality in heaven. And he's never coming out. He's eternally there. Eternally there once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if, uh, continuing on here, this is 9.13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, I mean, it did what it did back in Leviticus, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know, those shadows did what they did, but They were external pictures. They had an external value. You are now ritually cleansed. You can now ritually participate in Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacles or whatever. But it it didn't have the reality for your soul the way that Christ does. How much more? All right. How much more will His blood cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's why we walk in the newness of life. That's why we present ourselves as living sacrifices. That's why we in the church age can have this priesthood because he has his priesthood. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, for this reason, he is also, there's not an 
also in the New American Standard Translation. I'm disappointed by that. But really, the sense of everything in 11 through 14 is now pushing forward in verse 15 to something yet future. He's a high priest of the good things to come, and that's what the coming things are now spoken of. For this reason, he is also the mediator of a new covenant. The mediator of a new covenant. That doesn't demand that the new covenant's here yet, but it's on the way. Since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. So a death took place. The death took place. He's ready to make that covenant at any time. So it's a prerequisite, but it's not the same thing. Since a death has taken place, he can now administer the new covenant when the Father tells him to. See, but we don't know when. He doesn't know when. Only the Father knows when. This is going to happen. So that's 9.15. How about 12.24? Hebrews 12.24. Reference is made to the new covenant. Reference is made to Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. But there's no time reference with respect to when that covenant will take place on earth. In fact, it's a heavenly scene, really. And heavenly scenes tend to be outside of space and time. And that's what we see here. So we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. But nothing demands that it has to be in effect right now. That's just his title. He is now the mediator of the new covenant. He just hasn't started mediating yet because he hasn't brought Israel under the covenant yet. And to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So here he is. He's the mediator of the new covenant. Now members of the church will be, not yet, but will be deacon servants for Jesus when he applies the new covenant to the nation of Israel in the millennium. This too, I think, gets overlooked. Second Corinthians chapter three. Second Corinthians chapter three. And this this is almost the first verse people think about when they've taken the Schaefer approach or they've taken the the other approaches. Schaefer actually was kind of unique. Schaefer believed there were two new covenants. That there was a new covenant for Israel and there was a second new covenant for the church. But he couldn't really point to when that covenant was made or the verbiage of that covenant or the enactment of that covenant. He just had a verse here in 2 Corinthians 3 that bothered him. And also the fact that when we take communion, we mention the new covenant every time we take communion. That this blood, this cup, is my blood of the new covenant, which is given for many. Okay. So we mention the new covenant when the church takes communion. It doesn't mean we're in the new covenant or that's in effect. <clears throat> Likewise, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And if all you do is zero in on verse 6, you've missed the point. Because our position is verses 1 through 5. And then verse 6 looks forward. So 2 Corinthians 3.1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? Some people are very wrapped up in credentials. And so you need a letter of reference, or you need uh, an academic degree, you need letters after your name. And if without those letters after your name, then you're just inadequate. You're inferior. What are you even doing here? Get out of here. There's somebody better than you, and we want to listen to them. And Paul says, is that what you're looking for? You want us to come with letters of commendation? 
Coming from the Corinthians, that's kind of hilarious. You know, as, as divided as they were. Do we need letters of commendation? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, this is language we're going to see that's comparable to language. It echoes language. It's an allusion to language that we have in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, God writes His law upon the heart of Israel. Here, Paul is saying that the Corinthians are written on His heart. You are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written out with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. So the Holy Spirit is taking those Corinthian believers and writing their names on Paul's heart. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So the language is similar. It is an echoing of such language, and I understand why folks would be confused. But it's different. It's altogether different. Because it's present ministry. It's not after the tribulation that this is happening. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Notice the present tense in verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. This happens today. This is present tense today. Austin Bible Church exhibits this today. We minister to one another and we get written on each other's hearts as we minister to one another. This is the care that we have for one another, the love that we have for one another. The Holy Spirit writes our names on our hearts as we serve one another. It's a great confidence through Christ towards God. <clears throat> Not that we are adequate in ourselves, to, con- and this is our present adequacy, okay? Right here, right now. Even if you don't feel like it, it's true. We are adequate. How are we adequate? In every way. We are adequate, in not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So verse 5 says we have a present adequacy. In what way? In every way. Because in no way does anything come from ourselves. In every way, our adequacy is from God. Our present adequacy is from God as we serve one another. As we have one another's names written on our hearts. As you spend, uh, you know, you, you go and do a visitation and you spend whatever length of time and you're, you're ministering in your priestly ministry. You're ministering to a sister in a hospital or a brother somewhere. What you're doing, and as you're serving the Lord, ministering to them, their name gets written on your heart. And that's a grace blessing. That's an, that's an adequacy from God in a way that an Old Testament saint couldn't even dream of. All right, the present ministry that we have one to another. That's our adequacy. Who also, ah, okay. Now we've already seen a lot of adequacy in verse 5. You might even say we've seen every adequacy in verse 5. If we have every adequacy in verse 5, how do we add to that? Because again, it's not anything but everything. Our adequacy is coming from God. So how do you add to the every adequacy we have now? Well, a future adequacy is a sign whereby we will, who also made us adequate as deacons, diakonoi, deacons, servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so in the New Covenant, when that gets written, this is not the bride of Christ ministering to one another. This is a covenant between Yahweh and Israel. Yahweh will put His law in Israel's heart. Jesus will be the mediator of that. And we will be the deacon assistants for that. Again, deacons. All right. So there's a future. Just as Jesus has a present preparation for His future role, the church has a present preparation for our future role. And we better learn here and now how to serve one another. Because this is what's suiting us. As we serve one another and have our names written on our hearts, that's serving us. So that when the day comes that we're with the Lord and, and uh, helping Him as the mediator, we'll know what we're doing. Okay, We'll know what we're doing. So that's the impact there on verse 8. Now, into verses 7 and 8 then. The present ministry is preparing us for the future ministry. And the future ministry is to to mediate the new covenant. And he's going to give us details on that, starting in verse 8, really with 8b and following. But before we get there, the author wants to state the obvious. The author of Hebrews wants to state the obvious. And I love this. This is like, well, it goes without saying. Right? And I've found, and I think Scripture backs me up on this, that if something goes without saying, you probably ought to say it twice. Okay? Go ahead and say it. And say it a second time. Repeat it. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. I mean, right? Isn't that kind of goes without saying? If the first covenant had been faultless. It's like, you know, if the, the battery in my phone was eternal, I wouldn't have to recharge it. But clearly, my battery keeps dying on me. It's not an eternal battery. I've got to keep charging it. In fact, I'm sick of charging it. I probably need a new battery, a new phone, something. Because my phone did not come with an eternal battery. Wouldn't it be great? (laughs) You know? Jesus told the woman of the well, if you drink the living water, you never get thirsty again. And she thought he was mocking her. And she said, well, give me this water. I don't want to be thirsty ever again. Well, if the first covenant had been faultless, yeah, then Jesus would never even have to go to the cross. If the first covenant, I mean, if that day of atonement did the trick and and Aaron comes out of the holy place and we're done now. Let's see, the point is we're not done now. We're going to do it again next year and next year and next year. And then when Aaron dies, Eliezer will start doing it. And next year and next year and next year. When Eliezer dies, then Phineas will start doing it. Okay? I love Phineas. He's my hero. Phineas will start doing it year after year after year until he dies. And then I don't even know who Phineas' son was, but we can find, Chronicles tells us, a whole lineage there. Okay? So we have a point that really goes without saying, but he makes the point and he says it expressly. And there's a reason why he does this. And I love this. It's the use of counterfactual logic. We had it in verse 4 of this chapter already. You know, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Well, the fact is, he's not on earth, 
He's in heaven, so he's a marvelous high priest. We have such a high priest. We had it back in chapter 4. And in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, then he wouldn't have spoken of another rest after that. The fact is, Joshua did not give them rest. Yes, he conquered a physical land and settled their tribes, but he did not give them rest that David had promised in Psalm 95. And so there's a future promise of rest because Joshua didn't give it to him. There's a future promise of covenant because first covenant didn't get it done. These are counterfactual statements. And sometimes they're powerful. When they get used, they're very powerful. I illustrated a handful of these back in chapter 4. I'm going to illustrate a few more here this morning because I want us to be solid on this. The use of counterfactual logic is often perfect for declaring the obvious. Declaring the obvious. It's a great way to declare the obvious. You just say, well, you know, um, you didn't bring a goat with you to church this morning, did you? That's a rhetorical question. It's a counterfactual. Well, if you would have brought a goat, see, well, nobody did. Thank you for not doing that. Because we're church-age believer priests. We have living sacrifices. But sometimes you can just, and sometimes it just slaps the person upside the face and wakes them up and they go, oh, well, yeah, of course not. What are you saying? (laughs) Why would you ask me that? It's often perfect for declaring the obvious. Sometimes it's perfect for declaring the not so obvious, but important. Very important truth. And you can make it by uh, counterfactual logic. So let's look at some of those examples. And then we'll highlight the fact too, if we have time, human usages sometimes fall short. Human usages of counterfactual logic are often wrong. Sometimes it's wishful thinking on our part. Sometimes we say, well, if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done that. You probably would have still anyway, because you wanted to. You know, had I not become a pastor, I would have been a homicide investigator. I had a whole law enforcement career in front of me. And I wanted to become, by age 30, I wanted to become a homicide investigator. And I had the whole plan lined up. I was an MP for four years in the Army. Had the whole thing lined up, ready to go. See, so now I can say... If I didn't become a pastor, I would have become. But I don't know that for a fact. Honestly, if I hadn't uh, met Sharon and gotten married, and I mean, I probably wouldn't even be alive anymore. It comes right down to it. So we don't know, because we don't have the omniscience. We don't have every what-if scenario. We don't have, God does. So in um, Matthew chapter 12, let's start with Matthew 11. I'm going to blend these just because we're in a hurry. So if I miss one, I'm going to try to go back and forth between the obvious and the not so obvious. Counterfactual logic for the obvious and the not so obvious. Let's start in Matthew 11, which I listed as a not so obvious truth. Some of these maybe we could classify either way. But counterfactual logic, Matthew chapter 11. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. And we began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Not that they could not, they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. It's a counterfactual. If those miracles were done then, they would have repented. 
But those miracles weren't done. They didn't repent. Likewise, in verse 23, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. I mean, think of the revival ministry Lot could have had or Abraham Abraham could have had gone into uh, Sodom and done some of those Capernaum miracles that Jesus did. They would have repented and they would have still existed 2,000 years later. That's That's an extraordinary statement. So this is counterfactual logic. If this, then that. But this isn't true. So that has to be viewed as a lost unreality that could have been true. Okay, next chapter, chapter 12. He really rebukes the Pharisees here. Boy, he's insulting. Isn't Jesus insulting? He wouldn't last long in some, you know, light and fluffy, puffy ministries today. When uh, the Pharisees are all saying, you know, look what your disciples are doing. They're doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he says, have you not read... How insulting. Of course, that's all they do is read. These Pharisees read and read and read and they memorize and they teach others. They're experts in the law. And he says, have you not read? You know, like if I ask some of you, you know, have you ever heard of the Bible? Do you know what the Bible is? Have you not read? And then verse 5, have you not read? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And he goes on to say, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And that's a double rebuke. Because a few chapters earlier, he told them, go and learn what this means. He's quoting Hosea 6.6. And he told them, go and learn what this means, assuming that they don't know. And they don't. And they still don't. Three chapters later, they still don't know what this means. So he says, if you had known, in other words, if you did the reading assignment, the homework I told you to do, you would have known... And then you would not have condemned the innocent. The fact is, you don't know, so you condemned, and here we are. So it's counterfactual. It's not true. If it was true, then this would have happened. Aren't these great? All right. So Matthew 11, Matthew 12, Matthew 24. We had a couple of them here. One in verse 22 and one in verse 43. Matthew 24 um, and verse 22. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Talking about the tribulation. You know, the tribulation is going to be so intense, it has the potential, Satan could possibly exterminate every human being on the planet. Not just every Jew, which is what his main goal, but if he really wanted to do it, he could exterminate every human being. If... Not for the fact that God cuts those days short. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So he overrules and he does not permit. And this is, uh, this is important. All right, down to verse 43, same chapter. Be sure of this, if the, this is pretty obvious. If the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. Yeah, you know, burglars don't send you a text message to say, I'll be there at 3.30. I'm breaking in the dining room window downstairs behind the, behind the fence. I mean, if we had that kind of notice, then it's pretty easy to, uh, to be sitting there locked and loaded, ready, and take care of things. 
So that's the logic of it. And it's like, well, duh. The author of Hebrews this morning is saying, duh. When Jeremiah utters, behold, days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will enact a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's the biggest duh moment of all history because, oh, why do we need a new one? We're getting a new one? Thank God we're getting a new one. That mosaic one was impossible. None of us could keep it. We kept breaking it left and right. There were curses with that old covenant. Hallelujah, this new covenant. You see why it's such a a no-brainer. That's the point we get made here with these these counterfactuals. Um, 26.24, Matthew 26.24. The Son of Man is going to go just as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. This is marvelous. If you struggle to balance sovereignty with free will... You know, everybody struggles, that's fine, but just relax about it and realize that God doesn't struggle with it. God's got it perfectly figured out. He maintains absolute sovereignty when he decrees Judas to be the traitor, but Judas still chooses to be the traitor. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. It would have been, but he was born, so so much for that. Okay, Had he not been born, think about it, had, had Judas Iscariot not been born, if he'd have been a miscarriage in his mother's womb, that's good. Age of accountability, grace of God, he'd be face to face with the Lord. But the fact that he was born, the fact that he passed the age of accountability, the fact that he rejected the gospel, remained an unbeliever, that he betrayed our Savior, died and went to hell, that's not good. All right, that's not good. All right, well, The point is being made. We'll make more of those points. Jesus told his disciples, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. He nailed them there. He says, you guys don't love me. (laughs) They're trying to keep him from going to the cross. And he says, if you love me, you would have rejoiced. The fact that they didn't was proof that they didn't love him. Okay? There's other issues there. So keep this in mind. Next week, we're going to start tearing into this new covenant. And we're going to start seeing why it's such a no-brainer. Why it's such a, wow, glad this is on the way. Because Israel could not abide by that old covenant. No one could. Everyone failed. That covenant was a covenant of, they say, blessings and cursings both, but let's face it, it was a covenant of cursings. It was a covenant of death. Because eventually everybody failed. And the judgment was death. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for Hebrews. I thank you for the coming covenant. I thank you, Father, that we're not party to it because we're with Christ and he's the mediator of it. I thank you too, Father, even as we're not receiving wedding invitations to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're issuing the wedding invitations to the marriage supper of the Lamb because we're the bride, Father. And I thank you for that. I pray that we can keep things distinct. Who's receiving the invitation? Who's issuing the invitation? Who's uh, the covenant being made with? Who's making the covenant? Who's the mediator between the party making it and the party receiving it? Father, these things, uh, they take work, particularly uh, related to the Melchizedek component of it, Father. It's, it's deep doctrine. And if we're uh, accustomed to milk and not ready for meat, then this is, this is some deep stuff, Father. So we want to we wanna call upon you and your faithfulness. If this is not a day that we're ready to start making application, then at least put it in our memory banks, Father. Let it, uh, let it simmer on the back burner however long it needs to. And, 
Just let us stew on it for a while and chew on it and think about it. But let it be sooner rather than later, Father, that these pieces can fall into place. Because uh, the days are evil. The time is short. We need to be about our Father's business. And that's a, that's a Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. And we need, to be, uh, we need to be sinking our teeth into the meat, into the deep things of God. So thank you for your truth, Father. Make it our truth. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.